Hi, this is Brian Griffiths, the founder of Maryland Podcast Month. Maryland Podcast Month was founded in 2018 to draw attention to all of the great podcasts and podcasters here in Maryland. And during this time of social distancing, there is no better time to start learning more about locally produced podcasts. Shows like my podcast, Red Maryland Radio, I on Annapolis, the Conduit Street Podcast, JB's Drive-In Podcast, the Maryland Crabs, Quality Time, the Society Fringe Players, and more are still putting out fresh content. Visit MarylandPodcastMonth.com to learn more about these great Maryland podcasts. That's MarylandPodcastMonth.com. And we thank you for your support of local content. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here on a very special episode today. Of course, I have with me Michael Sanderson, and we also have the entire Mako policy team. Michael, this is the first time we've had five people on the podcast. And of course, we are continuing to practice social distancing. So we are all off-site working out of our home offices. But, you know, hopefully folks are going to give us a little bit of slack here. We're doing our best. I like it. I think this is this is good. New frontiers for us. Some of the folks on this episode you have heard before. Natasha Mayhew. Natasha, how are you today? Doing good, Kevin. How are you? Hang in. And Alex Butler, you have also been on the podcast. Alex, how's it going? Flattered to be invited back. And then Drew Jabin is making her debut on the Conduit Street podcast. Drew, how are you today? Wonderful. Excellent. So let's jump in first. We're going to do sort of a recap of session bills that were really important to counties. We'll each go through a couple bills. I'm going to save mine, Michael, for a future episode. And then as a note, we're also going to take a deeper dive into some of the bigger issues that were discussed in session. We mentioned putting a pen in the constitutional amendments. We mentioned that last yeah. week. We'll cover those on a future episode. I'm sure we're going to talk more about Kerwin School Construction, the bag ban. We've talked about that on a previous episode. But the goal here today is sort of an around-the-horn style recap of bills that really matter to counties and some interesting issues. Yeah, and, and especially the things that were uncertain with a week to go and what ended up being an abbreviated session, there were an awful lot of things that went from no idea to either completely done or completely dead in the space of four or five days. So there's a fair amount for us to recap here. Right. So obviously, we know this was a an interesting session. The COVID-19 outbreak obviously resulted in a abbreviated session. They left early for the first time since the Civil War. And, you know, I just want to talk a little bit about and get everybody's perspective on the way things ended. Obviously, they passed a lot of bills in the final days, more than 660 between Sunday and Wednesday. And, you know, I want to get everybody's perspective. It was hard for everybody around town, I think, to keep up. The committees were doing the subcommittees, voting sessions, the floor, especially because they had to lock the buildings down. But, you know, Natasha, Alex and Drew, talk a little bit about your thoughts on the way session ended and, you know, what your perspective was trying to keep up with everything that was going on. I mean, it was definitely weird. That's the best way to describe it. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I think it's something that you'll be like reading in the history books. We'll go to trivia 10 years from now and it'll be like, so in session 2020, (laughs) it was a lot. 
I think yeah, the hardest part was just kind of keeping track of where everything was, what was going on, and what we needed to do in that moment. Um, because, you know, it's kind of standard practice, you know, what you're doing in the last couple of weeks of session, you're really trying to get FaceTime, you're really trying to get those last minute conversations in to, you know, uh, push legislators in one way or another. With this format, it was, you know, barred from the building, it's kind right. of, how can I be most impactful? Right. And and to be fair, I mean, it wasn't just Mako that was in this position, it was everybody around town. And I think it's fair to say that they probably did the best they could under the circumstances they were in. What do you think, Michael? I, I think so. But I think I think those points are exactly right, that it's it's hard to appreciate unless you've been through this whole grind, how much is getting done just sort of in the hallways and outside the meeting rooms and you know, out on lawyers mall in between the buildings and so forth. But I've lost count of the number of times that late in a session, you know, I, I'm walking on my way to the house of delegates and a Senator grabs me and then says, wait, 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 let's get the other stakeholder in this. We can probably work this out right here. You guys don't want 10 million, but I bet you could go for 2 million. And then we end up sort of haggling things out and say, well, I bet you Mako would be okay if we made that $2 million and the other stakeholders say, okay, we could probably live with it. I mean, informally, that stuff happens all the time, but it's much easier to do face-to-face. You get that moment of FaceTime and you say, honestly, we can't live with $10 million, we need $2 million. It, It's hard to do that when you can't get face-to-face with most of the legislators and they can't with one another because they're sort of isolated in their own meeting rooms. It was just a really weird environment for the way you things usually get tied up. Right. And I think, you know, obviously committees were trying to broadcast their voting sessions and subcommittees. The House of Delegates this year for the first time live streamed on video some of their floor sessions. The Senate sort of put something together on the fly so that they could also have video of the Senate floor. And of course, you know, the sites were overwhelmed with people who were interested. And so there was there were some technical issues, feeds dropping out and having to refresh. But again, you know, on the fly, everybody is dealing with this the best way that they can. Uh, But it was certainly I think Natasha and Drew put it the best way. It was weird. Right. It was an interesting way to end things. And I still I still am just in shock at the way things ended. It, It just feels like, you know, we really didn't close session in the right way, if you will. There, there wasn't the pomp and circumstance. There was no confetti coming down from the ceilings when they adjourned sine die, but certainly interesting and certainly difficult to try and keep track. But again, under the circumstances, I, I kind of feel like they did the best that they could. I think everyone did the best they could. I mean, I guess what's lying in the background is if you're in a circumstance where the public can't be in the room to actively participate formally, right? You're having Senate bills that never got a hearing in the House and they come to the House and now there's no public participation in that bill hearing, you're missing a meaningful element of how the democratic process is supposed to work. And when the General Assembly concluded, okay, we're, we're, we're going to accelerate, we're going to have this busy weekend and we'll make a decision soon on how to wrap up, you know, it ended up, ended up being how to wrap up early. We all kind of knew that was coming. So does that mean you just do the budget? That's your only constitutional responsibility. Does it mean you, you do the budget and 10 priority bills or three priority bills? I mean, it ended up being, I, I lost count of how many bills ended up getting passed over the last few days of session, but it wasn't 
three and it wasn't 10 it was dozens and do- i mean hundreds right i don't i don't know 660 who- between sunday and wednesday i mean that's okay so so that's an awful lot of work and that's typically what happens in the last few days of a legislative session they put the bows on a lot of things that were kind of on their way to passage anyhow but with so much of the process being harder to follow, harder to watch, harder to participate in, it just felt like there was a fog around the whole thing. And I'm, I'm with you on everybody did their best, but that had a weird feeling to me, as well as, as, well as it being tough personally to follow a particular issue. It was just an odd circumstance to like not have any idea. What, what are they voting on? Oh, I, can't, I can't get a list. You used to be able yeah, to pick up would, by standing out the, outside the committee. Now you can't. I'd agree with that. I mean, I live in Baltimore and I'm sitting there and like to remotely have to try to pull up the general assembly streams and then, you know, that goes down and then you're following a reporter's feed on Facebook and you're hopping around to whatever sort of stream works and checking Twitter to see who's reporting out on what's happening. It was really hard to keep track of everything going on. I thought it was nice that we did get to see, um, have a look into some of the voting sessions, at least. I didn't get the list of what they're voting on. So again, you're still sitting there listening, trying to keep track of what bills are being discussed at the moment. It was really disorienting from your typical being there face-to-face in the room, talking to your fellow um, lobbyists and advocates and other stakeholders and the delegates and senators themselves. Yeah, for me, I know I had to rely a lot on texting you know, legislators and committee staff and, you know, committee staff, most of them were gone. They were mostly at home. So the General Assembly was also relying on a skeleton crew. And, you know, when you think about what it takes to get a budget prepared and printed and on the floor and some of these bills updating fiscal notes, trying to keep track of everything that's going on with only a few staff members in the building, it's a gargantuan task. But trying to text people and get voting lists and find out what's moving and what's not, I agree. It seemed like there was a fog around everything, and it still feels like there's a fog around everything because obviously we continue to deal with the COVID-19 epidemic, and we don't really know how long this is going to go on for. Hopefully, we won't see anything like this ever again. But you mentioned the media and following along. I think we need to give a huge shout out to the, the local media. I mean, because they were there every day. They were on the floor. They were in committees. They were allowed in the building. And so many people did rely on what they were reporting out to follow along. So they deserve a huge shout out. And I've seen other folks giving them credit where it's deserved for sure. Totally. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. As soon as the stream cuts out, you know, I'm checking Twitter to see if anybody has an update. And oftentimes they did. It was was the best information out there was on various social media, uh, people doing live streams on Facebook pages and so forth. It was the single best source for stakeholders to stay plugged in. You could do the official stream. But following a reporter who you know was able to follow the issue and and you know, hit the high points, irreplaceable. Let's jump into some of the issues that counties were very concerned with this session. Drew, since it's your debut on the podcast, we'll start with you. Talk about a few issues that you were following that counties were really invested in and how they turned out at this weird end of the session. Yeah, that sounds great. So definitely one of the good bills that actually made it all the way through and is waiting for the governor's signature is the Building Lifelong Library Learners Act. It's about encouraging minors to go to the libraries to get materials and it eliminates fines afterwards so that 
there's no deterrent. Mm-hmm. Um, what research has basically shown is that kids who receive fines for having materials out too long, they don't want to bring it back. So this bill would eliminate that and encourage them to come back. Counties obviously share funding responsibility for the libraries and support all kinds of resources for them. So this is really great. It's super exciting that it passed. Several libraries who who had voluntarily taken up this policy, I'm not sure where it originated exactly. I know Anne Arundel was among a handful who have done it voluntarily, but mm-hmm. and I lost count. When the bill came out to our legislative committee, there were a number of jurisdictions who were proud to say, well, we already did this locally, but sounds like a good idea. Right. Yeah, right. definitely. And so is there was there a fiscal impact to counties for this bill, or was this something where the state's going to chip in that lost revenue if there were fines that were outstanding? From the research, even in the fiscal note, counties fund well over the minimum for their public libraries, so there really is not a big hit at all. But the, the, the bill does have some funding that comes to libraries for capital and so forth, so it was sort yes. of you know the carrot approach rather than the stick. I do think this is a good bill. Anything that we can do to keep kids coming back to the library and not disincentivizing them to show up, really keeping the doors open for all these kids is is definitely a good thing. One of the most persuasive things I heard was the family who's worried about whatever, you know, 25 cents a day fine. And so you're you're late on two books for five days and that ends up being 250 or five bucks or something like that. There are some families to whom five dollars cash is a big deal and Mm -hmm. those are the people who you most want library resources to be available to right exactly and the families like that they don't come back so by doing this it'll really help we love libraries on this podcast we've talked a lot about libraries and all the fantastic resources that they provide so again i agree drew i think this is a good bill you know from the county perspective and it helps our communities immensely yeah definitely Anything else you want to bring up as an interesting issue for counties? There was a bill introduced that would have mandated counties to construct any sidewalks or crosswalks necessary for students to get to school. And obviously, MAKO supports the goal of the bill, but the financial hit was astounding. And we were able to testify. The committee voted it down pretty quickly which is really exciting news for counties. There's just so much to worry about financially already, especially in the midst of COVID-19. So it's exciting that that did not make it through. So so this is obviously an issue where you said mandate, and we don't like the word mandate. Obviously, we want all kids to have safe passage to school. This really sounds like it's an issue of who should be responsible for making sure that, you know, the sidewalks are constructed or figuring out how you can get kids picked up on the school bus, potentially, if there's not safe passage for them. Sounds to me like this is a big unfunded mandate. And again, like you said, we support the goal of the bill. It's just how do you get there? Bread and butter for MAKO is making sure that there are not massive unfunded mandates onto counties, protecting counties from these massive unfunded mandates, especially in the times that we're in. Yep. It's it's also one of those issues that it, it gets tangled the more you spend time on it. And during the bill hearing, you started to hear, well, the area I'm most concerned about is this numbered route. You know, yeah. and, oh, I'm, I'm worried about route four. I'm worried about route 115 or whatever. Oh, well, if it's got a number, that's a state road. So a bill that says the county's got to go build the sidewalks or the extra infrastructure, we don't. that's not even our right of way. We don't maintain that road. 
No, nope, um, but it said that we had to work with the jurisdiction, it, whoever did own it. We had to make the plan with them and right. carry it out. Right, and and that means you've got municipal areas where it's the where it's the town or the city who really has command and control. But it was this obligation: the county needs to get this done. Um, all, it's it, it was it was complicated on a level on beyond just being expensive or you know one size fits all it's sort of you know there was a lot of uh, finger pointing on well who would actually do this and how do we get it done with all the different stakeholders there Mm -hmm. right devil's in the details and of course i feel like we need to be on brand counties do maintain the lion's share of roads and bridges in the state but when it comes to rights of way natasha you have dealt with rights of way on other issues i mean Talk about how difficult it is to access a right-of-way from the state or from a municipality or vice versa. I mean, that's not an easy thing to do when the bill just says work with the other jurisdiction to access their right-of-way. I mean, that that's not very easy, is it? Right, because you'd be surprised at how many entities have already works with the counties and have assets in the right away, in addition to the local government assets and rights. And so you're really walking through having to deal with many different stakeholders, whether it's the utilities, other local governments that have assets in the right away. It's it's not an easy task at all or not simple to just say, yeah, just work it out. Right. And I also feel like once you bring the state in, once it's once someone says, well, this would really affect the state, too, and they have all these numbered roads, that's when things can, no matter what the issue is, that's when things can start to unravel a bit and things become way more complicated. It sounds like that's what happened here. So that bill was voted down, Drew. It actually did get a vote. Yes, it did. Do you expect this bill to come back next year. I mean, we're always interested in bills that may come back in different forms. Oftentimes, legislators will try and work with stakeholders in the interim, try to polish things up. But it sounds like it's an issue that needs to be addressed to make sure that kids have sidewalks to get to school. But this sounds like the devil's in the details, and and maybe this will get polished up in the interim. Yeah, I mean, Mega would definitely, as always, be willing to work with the sponsor and hopefully talk things out. But as of the moment, I have not heard that this is coming back or not. Very good. So more to come potentially there. But I think, you know, Drew, those are a couple issues that counties were watching very closely. Big fiscal impacts there and also jurisdictional impacts. Thank you so much for sharing those. We'll go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we'll talk more with Alex and Natasha about some of their issues that were important to counties. All that and more after the break. This is John Frenet with Ion Annapolis to let you know about our daily news brief podcast. If you want to keep up on Annapolis area local news, local weather and local events, check us out. We produce episodes every Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and deliver them right to your phone or computer for free. You can also catch them on our Facebook page, All Annapolis, or under the podcast category at ionanapolis.net. You can even ask Alexa to play it for you. So, if you want to keep up to speed on Mayor Buckley, County Executive Pittman, Navy football, maybe you're looking for a weekend thing to do, or if you just want to catch the hyper-local weather, give a listen to the Ion Annapolis Daily News Brief. We'll see you tomorrow morning. 
Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. On the front half, we started to get into a round-the-horn style policy roundup from the Mako policy team. Again, we have five of us on here today for the first time in Conduit Street Podcast history. As a reminder, we are continuing to work remotely amid the COVID-19 crisis, but we do want to keep doing these podcasts. We think they're valuable. And we are going through some of the issues that counties were really focused on during this session, this past session that was abbreviated. Again, we're going to hit some of these issues on future episodes, some of the bigger issues that we'll talk about down the line. But there are a number of issues that either passed or didn't pass that counties are really focused on. So, Natasha, you were covering a lot of bills this session. Do you have anything of significance to talk about? Maybe not some of the biggest issues, but some issues of note that counties are really focused on during the abbreviated session? Yeah, um, I'd actually like to talk to some of our correctional issues. So we had a pair of bills that I spent some time on that had to do with pretrial services and tools and costs. So one of them would have required pretrial risk assessment tools. So these are the tools that help to provide scores to individuals to see whether they're low risk or high risk, and they help the courts uh, make decisions as to whether someone should be held in jail pretrial or released on other sorts of special conditions like home monitoring. So Natasha, pretrial, what we're talking about here are people who have been charged with a crime. They, they're they're going to have a trial at some point, but in the interim, it's the county's responsibility either to hold them in the local jail or have some other kind of monitoring or whatnot. That's all sorted out. But these are these are people who have not yet been convicted of a crime. They're awaiting their trial, right? Right. Correct. So everyone um, goes through the pre-trial process in the local jails. And once you've been convicted, that's when they make the decision as to whether or not um, your sentence warrants you to go to prison, which are um, the state facilities. For misdemeanors and other shorter duration um, sentence crimes, you could stay in the jails. But this is before uh, the sentence and determination. It's before trial, pre-trial. And this is an issue that is not new this session, right? This has been, you know, years and years of these assessment tools and pre-trial in general. So this is not something that legislators have not heard about before. Right. So there have been efforts in the past to expand the use of pre-trial services and tools and to set up funding for pre-trial services. Some of those have been successful in the past. And so at this point, you have more than half of all counties having pre-trial programs. Um, and a majority of those that do have the programs of also using pre-trial risk assessment tools. And that is what the bill I worked on uh, was really focusing in on. So for that bill, the sponsors wanted to ensure that counties that are using these risk assessment tools are having them revalidated on a regular basis. When you say revalidated, what do you mean there? Just sort of a checkup on the, the tools and you know whether or not they're working efficiently? Right, exactly. Because these tools are supposed to be calibrated um, for that county's demographics in general. And so this would make sure that the tool is still um, properly doing its job after you use it for years on end. Okay, so this bill, this sounds very complicated. You know, it sounds like trying to avoid a one-size-fits-all here. You mentioned that half of the counties have these programs. So it seems like this is one of those issues where you're really trying to thread the needle and not be in a situation where it's one-size-fits-all because we know that doesn't work. 
Right. And so some of the problems we were coming up with with the bill as introduced was that it had a very short time frame for revalidation and also no funding component for this. So it would be costly for counties that use these tools to have to continuously update them. And with the short time frame, it wouldn't allow sufficient time to to get the data to have a good revalidation. So we worked with the sponsors to get some amendments onto the bill. So to elongate the time frame from three years to five years, and also to ensure that counties would be eligible for grants through GOCAP and the pretrial grant program um, to perform those revalidations. I remember, Natasha, I, I testified on this bill in, in at least one chamber. Uh, during the bill hearing, even though the conversation went on for a couple of weeks after that. And I, I remember it being pretty interesting in my mind that it, it sort of felt like, well, why can't we just have, a, why can't we have a pretrial assessment tool that can help the district court commissioner in a big county and then another one for a small county? Can't we just like buy two of these and share them? And I think most stakeholders came back saying, you really need to tailor it to your population and your demographics and, and so forth. And then the retesting every so often or revalidation every so often is, is a way to make sure there's public confidence that the tool is, is giving right. good guidance, right? Exactly, exactly. That was really the undercurrent there. Um, and in the conversations that followed after those hearings was ensuring that there was public confidence in these, in these tools. So ultimately, I mean, I know you worked a lot on this bill. You said there were amendments. What happened with the bill? Is this one that got through before, you know, the rush of bills at the end of session? Did this one pass? Yes, this bill passed. There was, this will tie into a second bill I'd like to talk about that uh, unfortunately didn't pass. But one of the recommendations here or amendments that we had on the bill um, that we wanted I mentioned the pretrial grant program, um, and we wanted to extend that grant program. Unfortunately, that amendment was not put on this bill, but there was another bill that was introduced where MAKO initially opposed as that bill sought to have us pay for all of reimbursement to defendants found not guilty. And we would have to reimburse them for all the costs of the pretrial conditions imposed on them. So as we talked about a little bit earlier, when we talk about a pretrial condition, um, we're talking about it could be home monitoring, um, it could be drug testing, it could be going to uh, drug treatment or other mental health treatment and other needs, making sure essentially that you report to court. So that bill, as introduced, would have had a horrible impact on counties. Um, it was millions of dollars in costs that were completely outside of our control. As we all know that the criminal justice system is pretty in intricate and there's a lot of different points and uh, at play when someone's going through the process um, that leads them to either having a, a guilty or innocence conviction. So the bill was amended to try to address MAKO's concerns over the pretrial grant program. So they completely gutted the bill that we hated and tried to push forward a bill with our amendments that would extend the pretrial grant program, still addressing some of the sponsors' concerns, which were over the costs for some of those conditions. The bill as amended would have 
uh, extended the grant program for another five years, so until 2028, and it would have then put it as a condition of extending the grants that jails would only be able to access those grants if they did not charge for the pretrial services. Unfortunately, that bill did not move forward. So where, where did it end up? It made it out of the House and into the Senate, but in the rush of trying to finish everything in time, um, it didn't pass, move forward from the Senate. And so you mentioned extending the grant program. That probably had a fiscal note attached to it. And we know that this year, the General Assembly was very concerned about any sort of big state fiscal impacts. You know, they, they were, they're doing some of the big legislation such as Kerwin. And now obviously with the COVID-19 epidemic, you know, they had to make some funding available to deal with that as well. So it sounds like with the abbreviated session and potentially, uh, you know, a pretty substantial fiscal note, this just wasn't able to get through. I mean, is that sort of your assessment on why this didn't go anywhere? Because it sounds like at the end of the day, it was a good bill. Yeah, yeah. With the amendments, it turned into a pretty good bill. And the, uh, the grant program is funded at a million dollars a year. And so that it would have come with a fiscal note of a couple of million dollars more, at least five million more from its original um, introduction. And that's certainly a concern as as you mentioned, there's a lot of big funding ticket items. And when you have an abbreviated session where you're trying to get things through, this one, unfortunately, just didn't make it through at that point. It also just process wise, when you describe uh, the bill came in in a form we were really concerned about, the counties had a lot of concerns with, but the committee identified, you know, there's there's something here we'd like to address and if this bill isn't exactly the right tool to, to say, let's amend the original stuff out of the bill and let's come up with something else to address this problem, that, that, that sounds maybe to somebody who's not a policy person or an insider, that sounds kind of like cloak and dagger and sort of sinister and backdoor stuff. But honestly, I think there's a good argument that that's the process working correctly, even if the sponsor of the bill who wrote it to say, I want to do A, B, and C because of this problem. If the committee who basically owns the bill once it's been introduced and heard, they say, we agree on the problem, but we don't totally agree on the solution. Let's do X, Y, and Z instead. That is a healthy way to try and tackle a problem, even if the solution isn't where things started off. So, you know, we were trying to be constructive and work toward addressing the concerns that the sponsor and the supporters had even though we didn't like the specifics of the bill. It's, I mean, what's one of Mako's calling cards is we can try and work stuff out if what you want to do isn't really antithetical to county government interests and autonomy. And this was one of those cases. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was a lot of really good constructive um, teamwork to meet with the other stakeholders, meet with the sponsors, meet in the subcommittee to work through okay, what issue is it here that we need to address and how can we how can we address everyone's concerns and still put forward something that um, everyone is happy with? And so it was a lot of good work to come through to um, amend the bill in the, in the way that uh, worked out for us and the jails and the um, advocates. And yeah, just unfortunate that it didn't get to go all the way through. Now, this sounds sounds like, a you know, we hear about pretrial issues, not just here in Maryland, but across the country. This is a topic that isn't going to go away. I know advocates are very passionate about this. Of course, our local jails 
have input as well. And of course, the counties are watching these issues very closely. So this issue, Natasha, sounds like it will come back next year and in following years, maybe not this exact same bill, but hopefully it sounds like you did a lot of great work on this bill and you were able to get some amendments on the bill that really made it more palatable for counties. I mean, we all are focused on the same thing here, which is if we can keep people out of jail that don't necessarily need to be there, that's a benefit to everyone. So hopefully if this pops back up next year, it will pop back up in a form that you work so hard on to get it to. Agree. And look forward to working on it. <laughs> Very good. And I know I know that's one you spent a lot of time on. So anything else, Natasha, or is that a couple of bills that, you know, obviously counties were focused on, but anything else you want to pop in there before we move on to Alex? I'll just do a quick plug on some bills that were very interesting to me. Um, there was a trio of bills that were introduced to modernize the reimbursement for um, services provided by EMS. And exceedingly, there's a growing demand uh, and need for EMS response and services. And unfortunately, their Medicaid reimbursements and state support have just not kept up with that demand. So the costs have been um, borne by the counties and the volunteer providers. So there was a package of bills introduced that would help either increase the Medicaid reimbursement rate, authorize reimbursements for um, treatment without transport, because currently they only get reimbursed if they bring someone, um, you know, someone calls 911, EMS comes, and they take them to an emergency room. So this would allow them to be reimbursed for treatment that's provided on site without a transport to emergency room. And I think um, the best way to think about this is, for instance, someone's overdosing and they come and they're administering Narcan and ultimately the person's revived and the person says, well, I don't want to go to the emergency room. Um, right now, the ambulances and EMS providers do not get reimbursed for those for the services and also to reimburse for mileage. Whereas, in, particularly in some of our more rural areas, um, they could be tra traveling long distances before they're um, either reaching the patient or reaching the um, emergency room. And through doing work on these bills that make us supported, it was interesting to learn at the hearings how far behind um, Maryland is on these reimbursement rates compared to some of their neighbors like West Virginia and Pennsylvania. Yeah, this is an issue that I'm very interested in as well. You know, I cover 911 related issues and you mentioned 911. I testified on one of these bills in the Senate Finance Committee. You know, the committee definitely understood they were all very concerned about, you know, reimbursements, particularly in rural areas where you have, you know, not only your county provided ambulances, but also private ambulance services that are traveling a, a great distance. And if they provide treatment on site and don't actually transport, they get no reimbursement. So it's really becoming a problem. It's been an issue and it, it continues to become a bigger issue. So I feel like this is one. Unfortunately, these bills were, I think, a victim of not only maybe a fiscal note, but also the abbreviated session. But this is one that's going to continue to come back. All of our counties are concerned with this issue and how it affects them moving forward. But it is a fascinating issue, and it's one that's going to have to be addressed sooner rather than later. You also, there's a lot of non-emergency transport where just people need to be, they need some way to get to kidney dialysis or some other you know, function like that. And you know, is, is, is an ambulance the right thing, way to do that? Probably not, but we haven't really threaded that needle everywhere. So there's multiple pieces of this really begging for a solution. Absolutely. Thank you, Natasha. Those are some fascinating issues that I know 
are very important to counties, not only in the last session, but moving forward. And Alex, you had a number of interesting issues. Your portfolio means that you do see a number of interesting issues. Uh, during the last session, I mean, I know you were running around all over the place. You mentioned you were watching a bunch of committees in the House at the end there. Let's hear from you about some of the issues that counties were really concerned with from last session and, and how maybe those issues turned out. Yeah, so very interesting year in all of my policy areas for counties, all the subjects from ethics and transparency laws to planning and zoning and environmental issues. But I mainly hang out with the Environment and Transportation Committee in the House and then EHE in the Senate, the Education, Health and Environmental Affairs Committee. And I, I think that that committee in particular this session was swarmed with bills. I know based on the topics they cover, I think everyone on the policy team had several in that committee. Uh, and I think they had the most out of any committee this session. So I just want to um, commend them for all of their work on all of those bills. It was a lot this session. Um, and I think I'll just kind of highlight a few interesting ones. And I'll start with the Water Quality Accountability Act of 2020. This was a bill, uh, it, was, it was lobbied for by private water supply companies. Uh, they said that it would lead to early detection of water quality issues. Talking about something like that happened in Flint, Michigan, uh, or other places where you saw some contamination issues. Uh, and it requires that water supply utilities, they'd have to maintain an asset management pl uh, plan, cybersecurity plan, have to inspect certain valves in certain ways. Uh, it would have treated all water supply systems the same, whether they serve as few as 25 residents or thousands of residents. And, and some of the, I mean, some of those prescriptive, you know, testing protocols wouldn't actually, you know, do what they're supposed to do. So it would have just led to overburdensome regulation that would not actually guarantee better results. And if you didn't adhere to those standards, then the bill said that you could no longer receive public funding from important areas such as the Drinking Water Revolving Loan Fund. Let me stop you there because... I think you're being very generous. I testified, I covered one of these bills for you in the Senate and, you know, I was on a panel and, you know, all that stuff, you know, it sounds very good. Cybersecurity and making sure that, you know, all the infrastructure is up to date and it's safe. But the reality of this bill is very different, right? I mean, I learned a lot about what this bill really was and where it was coming from. Um, talk a little bit about that and why it was so concerning where this bill not only was coming from, but also what we think it ultimately was trying to do. Right. So, I mean, right off the bat, it would cripple water systems and it would likely force them to sell their assets to the private sector. Um, and that's why it was lobbied by private water supply companies. Um, and regardless of these costs, they would end up being pushed on to residents. So actually, there was a, an op-ed written in Maryland Matters by representatives of the Food and Water, uh, Food and Water Action, AFSCME 67, and Labor Union, uh, and Maryland Rural Water that declared this bill a corporate water privatization scheme. So, you know, typically when you see water quality bill, Water Quality Accountability Act, you know, to me, that says environmental activists are interested in changing something to better water quality. Right. But that is not what this bill is. And in, in fact, pretty much every single group was opposed to the bill from, you know, us at MAKO to the municipalities, Maryland Municipal League, Association of uh, Municipal Wastewater Agencies. I mean, we had the NAACP, Sierra Club. I mean, the, the list of opponents to this bill is something I haven't seen on any of the other bills that I had any sort of stake in throughout all of session. 
And that's um, it's and this bill was a boilerplate bill, right? We've seen those before where, you know, private water or private whomever comes up with language and they ship it to every single state and try to get it through the assembly there. So this is something that we've seen in other states. This is really a boilerplate bill, right? Exactly. It's kind of a, a template bill, like you said, and it's just they've had success in a few other states. I think a few let it slip, but it would be really harmful to especially some of these small water systems, you know, thinking about like Garrett County um, and a lot of municipalities, and it would really force them most likely to sell their assets to a private company who now owns the assets. So the, you know, jurisdiction doesn't have to worry about the assets, but they, the residents have to worry about increased costs. And, you know, typically uh, I think it was said during the hearing that that their prices are 59% higher for residents because they have to run a profit. They're probably, you know, they're a private corporation. Um, so, you know, that's kind of the other side of public water supply that doesn't necessarily run a profit and they just simply reinvest that money into the system. So that was a really interesting bill this session. Uh, you know, it, it was remarked on as uh, one of the worst the committee had seen all session. But, you know, yeah. it, it, was, it was certainly something that we might see in the future. And like I said, has had some success in other states. And Michael, I saw you on social media. I think someone, a member of the General Assembly posted a comment about this bill. I saw you. I don't know if you shared it or you commented on it, but there was some interesting exchanges going on on social media on this bill. I I just feel like this is an interesting example of a, a, a bill gets introduced that has lots of features. I mean, I remember... You know, Alex was talking to us as he's reading through the bill and trying to sort out what it seems like it's going to do to a small water system and a larger system and whether this makes sense. By the time the snowball got toward the bottom of the hill, it, it became clear that the bill had some effects that were well beyond just, oh, let's have better reporting. Let's have some different standards. Let's have some paperwork filled out. And, you know, if you were worried about, oh, I'm, these seem like private and interests who are interested in like seeking to take over public assets, that's a really different debate than paperwork and cybersecurity, right? So on a certain level, I felt like this, this is the way the public process is supposed to work. Here's the bill. Here's my ideas. Here are the people who are behind it. And then the stakeholders who are concerned or have questions or who are opposed come in and they make their case. And in, in this case, a lot of legislators came away saying, no, 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 that's, I, you know, I, I'm for cybersecurity and I'm for accountability, but this bill, no, I, I, now that I understand it more clearly, I don't want to do that. And so ultimately, Alex, you know, you mentioned that the, the committees were saying this is one of the worst bills they'd seen. I'm assuming this one went down in flames. This bill did not get out of subcommittee. Uh, so it was voted down in subcommittee and the full committee decided that they would uh, support that judgment. Um, so it did not reach the floor of the House. Okay, so it sounds like that's a good bill that we were able to defeat. Obviously, a lot of stakeholders involved there, but excellent work on that one. I know a lot of time went into getting everybody's perspectives together. So any other interesting bills? I know, again, I know you have interesting bills, but what else do you have for us today as part of this recap? Well, today I've got one more for you. And I think this is something that I wanted to talk about for a little while now. It's called CCEs, Community Choice Energy. Um, this is a bill that we've seen before the General Assembly uh, for several years, kind of sporadically, um, dating back over, I think, 10 years. Uh, Michael, I think I, if, 
if I'm correct there, that provides local jurisdictions with another option to help their residents with power supply. So typically, individual residents have the option of picking their power supply, and that doesn't go away under this bill. If you love your standard offer service, you got it. But there'd be another option where a county, a municipality, or a group of them could create an aggregator and then procure power on behalf of their residents. And you know, as the name suggests, collect and utilize the demand and then use that power to negotiate better prices or potentially a cleaner supply, um, whatever the jurisdiction prioritizes. And that's kind of why it's called community choice. Right. So and this is one I remember at our summer conference, we held a session on this issue and it it was a packed room kind of going through what this means and what it doesn't mean. And this is, you know, this, this has a lot of stakeholders involved, people for and against, but yeah, Michael, you've been around a long time. Alex mentioned, this is an issue that goes way back. You were involved in this too. I know at summer conference, putting this session together. So, you know, talk about some of the history here. This goes back, I think to the year 2000, where Maryland was one of a number of states that decided to to deregulate the supply of electricity. You, you still get your electricity delivered to your house through an investor-owned utility, but the supplier, in theory, you can choose. Um, and one of the ideas there was everybody's going to go out and, and cut their own deal and, and do better. I think most people would say that the market for electric suppliers is so opaque and difficult to follow it's tough to go out and feel like oh i'm i'm getting a better deal i'm now an expert enough that i've decided to choose this company i mean here's somebody with a bunch of windmills and here's somebody who says you get a 30% rate cut and i don't really know what this means am i signing up for a four year term that's complicated so the idea of this bill was hey maybe a town or a county can get together on behalf of their citizens who don't opt out and say, let's all get in together and save money, or let's all get in together and go green. It's been out there for, this idea has been kicking for 20 years or so in one form or another. That's right. And this year, actually, I think it went the farthest it ever has. It passed out of the Economic Matters Committee in the House as a pilot project, specifically for Montgomery County. And that was really due to the great support of the Montgomery County delegation. Um, unfortunately, it's, it, you know, and then it made it to the floor and made it out of the house and then it stalled in, you know, the crazy final days of session uh, in the Senate Finance Committee. Um, so definitely think that this is something that you're going to see in subsequent years and might have a chance of passage, um, especially since it got this far of this session. Right. And just to be clear, I mean, as I think it's important, this does not mandate that anybody sign up for any particular provider, right? This really just gives people the choice of where they want to get their electricity or a local jurisdiction could decide, you know, we want to get our electricity from this provider because maybe it's cleaner or maybe it's cheaper and we think this is the way to go, but it doesn't mandate that anybody do anything. So no, it's a, it's enabling legislation is what it is. So the legislature would give the ability to local jurisdictions, counties, municipalities, or group thereof to form this aggregation and they would then everyone in that jurisdiction after you know kind of lengthy public processes and several notifications would if the community enacted an aggregation they would be opted into um, this this program but however at any time that resident could then opt out of that and still have their standard offer service if they they felt that that was the better option for them or they could 
you know, continue to participate uh, by default in the aggregation service provided by the jurisdiction. So they can, you know, go with what the county's doing, county municipality's doing, you know, and pursue that kind of cleaner, you know, cheaper energy, possibly even a combination of both. Or if they prefer that standard offer service, they can switch right back to it. Fascinating issue. And obviously, anytime you're dealing with utilities or energy, there are going to be lots of different opinions. Sounded like, you know, this bill was pared down to just a local pilot, but just got caught up at the end of session. It did pass out of the House, as you mentioned, but it was a victim of timing, I guess. And you expect this one, as you said, to come back next year and in the years ahead, potentially maybe in a little bit of different form to try and assuage some of the concerns that were raised at the hearings. Yeah, I would definitely look for this one in the uh, in subsequent sessions. I think that, you know, there was a lot of interest from counties, municipalities, uh, particularly in Arundel and Montgomery. And I think that as more people look to kind of increase their clean energy portfolio or look to kind of help their residents with some cost issues uh, in power supply, I think that more and more jurisdictions will push for this. Uh, and I think that it's it's something to look out for. It might, might pass in a, in a later session. Yep. Sounds like this is all about local flexibility. We like local flexibility. Again, giving counties and their residents the choice is always a good thing from the makeup perspective. Anything else, Alex, that you want to add here before we close out on our recap? No, you know, I think those are kind of some of the more interesting uh, issues that didn't receive a whole lot of attention that I kind of wanted to highlight. Um, you know, as I said, very interesting session across all of my areas uh, and across all of Mako's portfolio. Uh, but that's that's all I have for today. Let's put a pin in in the bag ban and the point yes. of sale limits on plastic and paper bags, because that, that one is worth, uh, you know, a, a deeper exploration. We talked about it back in, I don't know, in February. But uh, the aftermath of yet another failure is worth maybe a longer autopsy, I think. Yeah, I can talk for all day about the bag ban. I think we'll we'll, we'll spare our colleagues and and the listeners of this podcast uh, that whole, whole saga this time, but you'll get it soon. For sure. Thank you so much. We're definitely going to come back and talk about that. And Michael, you know, we're, we're finishing up this recap here, but we do have uh, some special episodes coming. I know next week we're going to have a special guest. I think you and I have talked about trying to maybe put out some more content in the midst of this quote unquote quarantine, you know, to keep <laughs> our our listeners plugged in here. But I'm excited for next week. And I think exciting things to come with the podcast generally. Yeah. So so, hey, if you're out there and you're listening to Conduit Street and you feel like, hey, maybe something more, drop your idea, you know, you know, hit, hit us up on social media or send an email to Kevin or Michael at the at the at the Mako email address, um, get something in the mix because we are actively thinking about what we can do with this medium, uh, given um, you know, given working remotely and so forth. But this is an opportunity maybe to explore some things that we might not have otherwise had time to. So we're open. Well said. So we'll go ahead and leave it there for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. As Michael mentioned, follow along on social media. Drop us a note if you have any ideas of something you'd like us to take a deep dive on or maybe some guests that we could invite on. And, of course, the Conduit Street blog. We did a recap here. We have full recaps of every issue area on the Conduit Street blog. Just go to conduitstreet.mdcounties.org. You'll find everything there. But... Until next week, stay tuned for a special episode. For Natasha, Drew, Alex, and Michael, this is Kevin signing off, and we will talk to you soon.